1: This morning, we close off chapter 3 of the book of James. And as we do that, we have seen that James has brought us back to the topic of wisdom that he introduced back in chapter 1. In verses 13 through 18 of chapter 3, he specifically addresses the fact that there are two kinds of wisdom. Now, the existence of more than one kind of wisdom is why we saw last week that there is a problem of wisdom. Wisdom, as we know it, really has no problems. It is good, it is godly, it is a gift, and it is essential to the Christian life. But the reason there is a problem with wisdom is because of the other kind of wisdom, which is ungodly. By way of review, what we saw last week is a wisdom that is steeped in arrogance, fleshed out in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's a wisdom that is not from God, but it is earthly, it is natural, it is demonic. I'm quoting the verses that we looked at last week. The believer, according to verse 13, is to pursue a wisdom that is godly, a wisdom that is from God, a wisdom that is evidenced by righteous behavior that shows the existence of a wisdom from God that is defined by gentleness. Gentleness being, as you recall, strength under control rather than a form of timidity or fear. So we saw a distinction between the pride of man and his wisdom and the gentleness of God and his wisdom. So distinct are these two that verse 16 tells us that if a believer struggles with the various sinful manifestations of pride, he is at that moment lying against the truth. In other words, he is living, even if for a moment, if even in just a particular environment or with a specific individual, he is living a lie because the sin of pride is equivalent to the ungodly wisdom and is contrary to his profession of gospel truth. Even further, if someone is habitually characterized by pride with no ounce of humility, no desire for gentleness, then he is lying against the truth to the degree that he is not a believer despite his claim to be one. Now that's all review. And it is important to understand the reality of sinful, ungodly, earthly, natural, demonic wisdom, because it is described not as an attribute only of the wicked and depraved, but of something that professing believers can exhibit. There is good news, though. And the good news is there is a godly wisdom, the kind of wisdom that Christians refer to when we talk about wisdom. And the wisdom that Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 9.10 that is initiated by the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And you'll remember we looked at understanding as well last week. As believers, we have this kind of wisdom. But we want more of it. We want it for every aspect of our lives, which is why James calls us to ask for it back in James chapter 1 and verse 5. But what exactly is this right kind of wisdom? What, what does this look like? And if it's possible for us to choose actions that resemble an ungodly wisdom, how do we live in a way that exhibits godly wisdom? Well, the answer to these questions is found in our passage this morning, the last two verses of James chapter 3. James chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. I invite you to join me there. James chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, as we finish off this chapter, but also finish off this look at the two kinds of wisdom. He says, after explaining the ungodly wisdom, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now last week, we looked at three unexpected problems of Christian wisdom. Today, we look at three expected blessings of Christian wisdom. In other words, they're expected because nothing we will look at this morning in describing Christian wisdom will be surprising to you. They all reflect the God you serve and his character. What's more, we know that this wisdom and all that it entails is a blessing from God. Three expected blessings of Christian wisdom. The first we're going to look at is the association of wisdom the association of wisdom. Look at the first part of verse 17 where he says, contrary to ungodly wisdom, he says, but the wisdom from above. We'll stop there. Because of God's character, because of his promises that flow out of his character, it is hard for the believer to conceive of the hypothetical in which God saves us and then just leaves, stops guiding us, stops directing us, doesn't give us his word, no Bible, no conviction of the Spirit, no guidance whatsoever. We can't fathom that because that's not a reality. Even in countries that still exist today where the Bible is forbidden, where people have to hide their Bibles or have no access to Bibles, they still have the Holy Spirit. Believers still have a morality and a conscience that is guided by the Holy Spirit. But could you imagine that if we didn't have any of that? If Christ never said, I have to leave because then the helper can come. He just said, I have to leave. Good luck. Again, it's hard to conceive. It's hard to imagine. But I like to mention that hypothetical. This is not the first time I've done this. I like to mention it once in a while because it reminds me and hopefully you of all the blessings that God bestows upon us post-salvation. Yes the height of it is our salvation. But do you understand that everything we have because we are believers is a blessing that we should not take for granted. The Holy Spirit, the continued forgiveness of sin, not at the moment that you not just at the moment where you accepted Jesus Christ and then you're on your own to take care of all the sins afterwards, no he continues to forgive. He continues to hold fast and secure a place in eternity for you. He doesn't just let it crumble like an earthly building that is prone to disaster and age. He continues to help us. And one of those blessings in our process of sanctification as we live out our lives since being justified is His wisdom to help us navigate this life. Last week in verse 13, James described a life of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition as being characterized by wisdom that does not come from above. And here in verse 17, he says that the wisdom he is about to describe is the wisdom from above. Do you understand your ability to navigate this earth, this life, in a way that pleases God? Even the fact that that we have the Scriptures in whatever form that you prefer. Even if you came from a country where there was no form other than memorizing it because some missionary memorized it and came and recited it. All of that is a blessing from God, and it is the wisdom of God. And it comes directly from Him. To come from above refers to heaven. Heaven, in this sense, refers to God. And it's not just a wisdom that comes from heaven in general or from the angels or any other heavenly being, but from God Himself. He is the only one who can give. it. As we enter a time where we are looking forward to the celebration and the memorial of Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection, I am reminded from friends that I have, mostly on social media, who are Catholic, who are Jewish. And they believe that wisdom comes from all sorts of heavenly beings. Saints, St. Saint Joseph, the Virgin Mary, different people who are in heaven and they think there is a wisdom that comes from them. That's not what we're talking about. When it comes from above, when it comes from heaven, we are talking about one and that is God himself. Now, this is a minor point that we're talking about here. James doesn't even elaborate on it. He uses this phrase, wisdom from above, to simply distinguish this from the other wisdom. But I wanted to take the time to address this because it is a good reminder of our position in Christ. We are the Lord's, and his wisdom by grace belongs to us. He has given it to us. He has blessed us with it. And the reason for this is because we are people who belong to heaven where this wisdom comes from and not to earth. From the moment of your redemption, we have become citizens of heaven. And Paul reminds us of this in Philippians 3.20 where he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of you are citizens of the United States of America, and you're proud of that fact, and that's fine. You want to preserve our country however you can, and so you get very active and very passionate about politics. But ultimately, you have to understand that you are a citizen of heaven, and you must be more passionate about the preaching of the gospel than preaching political morality. Peter calls believers in 1 Peter 2.11 strangers and aliens here on earth. We get this. The more we look at the news, the more we listen to just casual conversations in the workplace, the more you are bewildered, the more you are shocked. Do you really believe that? You really believe that? That's your stance. This is what you think humanity should be about. This is what you think we should essentially worship. We are blown away, just like when you visit a foreign land with your culture and your customs. You're like, people really eat that stuff? People really do that? That guy didn't even look before crossing the road. That guy's driving on the wrong side of the road. We're bewildered because we don't belong there, it's not our citizenship. And so it makes sense that the things of the world would be confusing to you, would be bizarre. And this is part of the wisdom of God. We are citizens of heaven. And we don't belong here, so our lives should not represent the sinful theme of our world, nor should our wisdom be that which is self-focused, disorderly, or otherwise arrogant. Because that's the wisdom that is not from above. Rather, we should live according to the wisdom that is from above, and we, among all the inhabitants of earth, are able to do so because of what the Lord has done for us. And this is the first blessing of Christian wisdom, that we have God, we trust God, we are gods. A simple but foundational and foundationally profound truth. It is where we must always begin our position in Jesus Christ. But as I said, this phrase is more of an aside or assumption that serves as a lead-in to James's main description of such wisdom. So let's look at what this wisdom entails by looking at our next and uh, the bulk of our uh, message this morning. The next expected blessing of Christian wisdom is the attributes of wisdom, the attributes of wisdom. He says in the remainder of verse 17... The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. James first says that this word wisdom is first pure. and The word first indicates that this is the chief characteristic of godly wisdom. It means that purity is highest in rank. In fact, grammatically, it shows that the following six characteristics, in a sense, define this first characteristic of being pure. Back in James's day, pure was a word that was used of moral innocence and was fittingly used of things or people uh, in different religions that had to go through some sort of ceremonial cleansing process so as to be worthy to enter the temple, approach or be dedicated to the the gods. And so any sort of defilement or contamination would be cleansed, at least in their minds, according to their religion. Generally speaking, and you can see how this applies to godly wisdom, it has the implications of things like sincerity, moral blamelessness, innocence, and spiritual integrity. Now, all of this makes sense as wisdom comes from God And God is holy and pure. In fact, the word pure comes from the same Greek word as the word we have in English, that is the word holy. So this word pure and the word holy in the Greek come from the same Greek root. So that's the main characteristic of wisdom, pure. The next six descriptions are actually in the Greek alliterated. In other words, they, say, they start with the same letter. Obviously, that doesn't translate into the English, uh, but there's some poetry that James uses here. The first four of the six we'll look at start with the letter E or the equivalent to the letter E in Greek, and the last two start with the Greek letter A. Now, the first is peaceable, peaceable. This describes someone who is loving and, of course, promotes peace. And you can see how this is a direct contrast to what we saw last week in the ungodly wisdom because that promotes division and animosity through jealousy and selfish ambition. And the connection between peace and wisdom is not a new one. It's found all over the Scriptures. Proverbs 3.17 personifies wisdom and says, All her paths our peace. Peace is part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, and those are just two examples. And when we get to the next verse, we'll see James repeat the importance of peace as the way in which we live out our obedience in this sort of wisdom. Now, we understand that this is not peace at any cost. For example, this is not accepting sin. This is not compromising the gospel or your morality so you can get along, but it is forgiving sin that promotes peace. It is not judging those who misunderstand the gospel because they are poorly taught even if they fight against you. That promotes peace within the gospel. Obviously, the follow-up and the greatest emblem of peace would be to preach the gospel to them in a loving way. I mean, even in James, since we started, we've seen many aspects of church life that can be disrupted by personal ambition and pride that is representative of of ungodly wisdom that disrupts peace within the local church. We saw that the tongue tears down and curses men. That's not peace. We've seen the profession of faith devoid of works that leaves oneself served and others destitute. That's definitely not peace. We've seen the partiality that leaves Christian brethren mistreated while others are honored simply for their wealth or some sort of external worldly factor. Again, division. All examples of disrupting the peace and unity of the church. And this is why true wisdom, as we have seen throughout James, and here especially, true wisdom from God is peaceable. The next aspect that James lists for us is gentle. This is a different Greek word than what we saw in verse 13. This word here means reasonable, considerate, inoffensive, mild in some of your translations is a good word for it. So this really has ideas of being courteous, considerate, and fair. And what this means for the believer is that in following God's wisdom, the believer will not be easily angered or upset. He doesn't get combative. He doesn't want to fight, pick fights, or respond to someone picking a fight. And this is the person who doesn't get defensive even when provoked. Have you noticed that in our culture, we are so self-entitled that people get defensive when no one is even saying anything against them. We're so self-entitled, we're so proud, that even someone speaking in generalities or praising another person, we start getting defensive. But here, it's taking this to the more realistic, hopefully realistic situation, in where you're not getting defensive when you are actually specifically being attacked. There's actually a sense here in this word gentle of deferring or yielding to others. This is so important to the Lord that it is actually a spiritual requirement of pastors and elders in 1 Timothy 3 to be gentle. Paul, ref- Paul refers to Christ as meek and gentle in 2 Corinthians 10. Meek being the word we saw in verse 13 and gentle being the word here. So to be gentle, when you look at what Paul, how Paul describes Jesus Christ, to be gentle is actually to follow in the pattern of the epitome of holiness and manliness, Jesus Christ. Then in Philippians 4, 4 and 5, Paul gives us a connection between finding joy in the Lord and gentleness. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. When it comes to personal attacks, injustice, poor treatment, or even hatred and embarrassment, there is a humble patience when we pursue the wisdom of the Lord, a steadfastness that will respond with humility and gentleness. This is very different. Okay, you've got to understand this. This is very different than caving into political correctness or giving into the norms of society. This is not what we're saying. We are talking about personal relationships where your behavior is to be evidence of godly wisdom. In fact, when you think about political things or social movements, it's actually easier to sit back because they may not directly affect you. It's easy to sit back and say, God is in control. Man is depraved when we watch the news or we're irked by politicians and business owners pushing a liberal agenda on you. It's much harder when you are personally attacked for whatever reason. But whether it's religious persecution or someone who just doesn't like your personality or even your race, or simply a difference of, of opinion or some other trivial matter. The one clinging to godly wisdom will be gentle. And the same way we look at the world and say God is sovereign, we must look at our personal lives. And when others dislike us and attack us, that is for most of us. That will be step one in remaining gentle, sitting back and trusting the sovereignty. Of God and understanding the depravity of man. Now, a lot of this means taking that same trust in difficult situations. We look at our crumbling society, we must place it into our own personal circumstances. And that gentleness is very similar to the next attribute, which is reasonable. Reasonable. This literally means in the Greek, Easily persuaded, but stick with me here, it does not mean gullible, but it means willing to yield to others, willing to defer to others, but of course, only when it does not involve theological or moral truth. Outside of Scripture, this word was used often to refer to a soldier's submission to military discipline. We understand this about soldiers. They do whatever is asked of them. They put aside their own preferences. They put aside their own desires. They put aside their own ego. They definitely put aside their own comfort, and they do whatever is asked by their commanding officers. Now, this word was also used of the submission to or observance of legal as well as moral standards. So you can see how this idea translates into the Christian who, on the one hand, submits the biblical truth from another person rather than attacking or defending himself. And when I say from another person, I don't mean accepting truth when someone is preaching to a large group. That's easy. I'm talking about when someone gives you biblical truth in a one-on-one conversation that addresses Your sin. Do you defer to them? Do you yield to them? Do you say, thank you, I appreciate that? Admonition, personal rebuke. On the other hand, this can also refer to just casual conversation, non-biblical or spiritual issues, not being ambitious or selfish, not always wanting to correct others or interject your view. You ever find yourself doing that? I'll admit I find myself doing that. I'm interjecting my opinion and I'm thinking, why in the world does this matter? Why am I even saying this? This is such a trivial matter. It doesn't impact anything. Just wasting words, just arguing because of my own ego. Who cares type of bread tastes better or what the best pizza is or who the best sports team is I know that hits home for some of you guys but you see what I'm saying I mean you can talk about those things you can have a friendly debate but you know you know when your ego is getting in the way and you just want to correct others when the correction is not even worthwhile and so when we talk about reasonable there's a tone of being approachable being willing to set aside your pride to get along with other people. We can put it this way. This is someone who is teachable and not stubborn. Again, we're talking about subjective issues or even objective issues that are not worth fighting over. Why why sin in anger? If the person is not going to be convinced that the Eiffel Tower is not in Barcelona, then just give it up. Who cares? It's not going to change anything. Again, we do not compromise theological truths or moral standards, but even then, we speak the truth in love. The fourth characteristic we see here is full of mercy. The word full indicates a characterization, so characterized by mercy Full love also uh, defines the next one, uh, good fruits. But f- mercy, first, means having a forgiving spirit, but more so the willingness to help. This is help in practical, real-life situations. We have seen examples of what this means in several places in James. You have called to be doers of the Word in one twenty-two. There's the description of pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God being the care of widows and orphans in chapter 1, verse 27. In chapter 2, verse 15, there is the example of works proving faith in helping a fellow believer with food and clothing. Remember that example he gave? Then we also have two verses before that in chapter 2, verse 13, the warning that those who do not show mercy will be judged mercilessly. That final warning in 2.13 is connected to the call for believers to love one's neighbor as himself. Mercy is doing, it's serving, it's helping. It is no surprise, then that mercy you see here even in the English grammar is connected to the next attribute, full of good fruits. This would refer to every sort of good work or deed, again reminding us of the product of true saving faith in chapter 2. And that term, or the term fruit of righteousness in Philippians 1.11, fruit of righteousness, is a good connection to what we're talking about here. Because James is not just talking about doing things, but good things, good fruits, things that are worthwhile in the eyes of God. And you understand The context will determine this, but more often than not in the New Testament, when the word good is used, it is within the context of not social good, cultural good, felt needs good, but good in the eyes of God. What is that? Read your Bible. It is basically anything that adheres to the scriptures and the character of God. You know, we look at our lives these days, we fill our time with so much stuff. Now granted, for the majority of us, there is a required within God's plan. There's instruction within the New Testament of how we should treat our bosses and so forth. We need to be faithful to our debtors, to our Lord, to having financial stability and how we use money. And so there is a reality for most of us that there is a 40-hour chunk of time, for many of you, 50, 60, 70-hour chunk of time where you are working. In your free time, which for some of you is within those 40 hours, we fill our time with a lot of stuff. It's almost as if we are trying to stifle any sort of original thought in our brains by grabbing every single device we can every single second. Rest and comfort are the norm while mercy and good fruit are sprinkled in when convenient. And those two need to be flipped around. We should be serving. We should be looking for ways to serve. We should be going out and helping one another, preaching the gospel to the world, visiting widows and orphans, and then comfort and rest should be sprinkled in once in a while. There is not, nor will there ever be, a lack of need for active Christian service. I'm not saying everyone recognizes their need but that doesn't really matter. We are called to be men and women of mercy and good fruits. And there are needs that need to be met. And understand when we say needs, it's not just physical needs. There are those. There are spiritual needs. There are people who need to be encouraged. There are people who need to be admonished. There are people who need to be reminded to come to church. There are people who need to be told what a church is there is always something for you to do in terms of Christian service. And if you don't see a need, you are not looking hard enough. And frankly, the needs are so many that if you don't see any, you probably aren't looking at all. You know, when we're lazy, and this goes into all of the characteristics and the hard attitude of godly wisdom. The lazy have the luxury of being judgmental because they don't spend enough time with other people to develop compassion. The lazy have the luxury of being judgmental because they aren't spending enough time with others to develop compassion. You take that phrase, you can replace the word lazy with a number of different kinds of people. The antisocial, the shy, the proud, the selfish, all have the luxury of being judgmental because they're not spending enough time with people to develop compassion. you say, what in the world does that have to do with mercy and good fruits? Because I have found that Christians who are not about the business of God are about the business of arrogance and judging others. Rather than using their knowledge for service, They use it to judge and condemn. And isn't that what James is saying here for the Christian with either demonic wisdom or godly wisdom? Many of you know as you research churches to go to, I would say at least 70% of you specifically search for, Google, or went to certain websites and like it or not, the other 30% of you most of you Googled John MacArthur Church, Master Seminary Church, Expository Preaching Church, and maybe you threw in R.C. sprawl or some other words that would pop up churches like ours, and you found others, good friends of mine who are pastoring all around the Bay Area with solid doctrine, expository preaching, graduates of the Master Seminary. And many of those churches within God's sovereignty, and praise God for this, are filled with people who went to the Master's University, who went to Grace Community Church, have relocated to the Bay Area, and are just looking for a like-minded church because they were part of John MacArthur's church for a long time. Now again, fully trusting in God's sovereignty, I cannot tell you how often I tell people what a blessing it is that our church is not like that. That a good third of our church over the years has never heard of John MacArthur. Praise God. You know why? Because a lot of these people from these groups, they come in knowing their stuff and that's a wonderful thing. But they tend to get judgmental. They come to get proud. They've forgotten to fall on their knees and worship God because they are so filled with theological knowledge. And that's not the fault of Masters, MacArthur, or any of these churches, you understand. But I'm so thankful that probably every other QA, I get a question as a John MacArthur Master Seminary pastor, my Muslim. My Buddhist, my whatever person, relative died, are they in heaven? And many of us want to go, why don't you know that? Are you kidding me? I praise God for that. You know why? Because you're here. And you're willing to learn and listen to godly wisdom even when it's shocking, when it's offensive, but you know it comes from the Word of God. I am so thankful for all of you. The teachability, the willing to practice godly wisdom and to take this knowledge and not condemn others, not condemn each other, but to serve one another and to praise God and to worship. Friends, excel still more. Back to the text. The next one is unwavering. This means undivided, wholehearted. It has the sense of being single-minded. Now, this would be the opposite of the doubting individual in one six. that is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, this is speaking of total, undivided, unwavering, unhindered commitment to God. The, the idea is not that you always land on God's side after giving it some thought, You come into a situation, you have a decision to make, and you think, hmm, what should I do? And then you always do what is right in God's eyes. No. The unwavering individual is the one who doesn't even need to think about it. He is filled with the ways and wisdom of God and immediately chooses what honors God and submits to His Word. No indecision, No vacillating, no wondering if they should have, no doubts, no indecision, no regrets after making that decision, unwavering, singularly focused, single-minded. And so I want to ask you at this juncture, what makes you hesitate? What causes you to second-guess doing what honors the Lord? Why do you weigh potential consequences against the weight of the glory of God? Why do you regret your acts of obedience after the fact? This is not about being calloused, insensitive, or uncaring. This is not about saying, this is what I'm going to do and you just need to deal with it. No. You can be unwavering. You can be godly without being a jerk. You can stand firm on biblical truth without neglecting those who disagree. In fact, as we just saw, true wisdom demands that standing firm on biblical truth includes humility and gentleness. The final description of godly wisdom is without hypocrisy. This has the idea of being sincere uh, which is the word that ESV and NIV use. It literally means not playing a part. Uh, this word talks about being yourself, someone who's real, not putting a facade, not trying to impress people. This, is, this has ideas. Uh, so again, without hypocrisy is one word in the Greek. and has ideas of being stable, being trustworthy, being transparent even. We understand that this is greatly hindered by the fear of man wanting to impress others or really any sort of desire to project a persona or a facade that's not really who you are. And this is evidence of true wisdom because it shows that God's wisdom is in your heart. It's in your soul. It's not just external. It's not just head knowledge. It's not just something you do while you're around other Christians. When you are this kind of person, a sincere, without hypocrisy, nobody needs to question or second-guess your intentions. No one needs to see you and acting godly and nice to your kids and all of that and being just a, a role model, the epitome of biblical morality. And there's one person in the group goes, hmm, I went on vacation with them once and it's kind of different. It's kind of different. And when it comes to advice or biblical counsel, we need to know that you truly, truly live out the virtues of godly wisdom so that what you say is sound and what you say is consistent. In fact, in 1 Peter one twenty two, we are called to love with a, quote, sincere, same word, a sincere love. Really, authenticity is what we're talking about here it is so important in the christian life because we rely on one another. and we don't just rely on one another for little helps here and there. we rely on each other. we need each other. we need to know that one another are speaking the truth. that you're speaking what you truly believe and what we believe. and what you believe is what you claim and proclaim. It would be perhaps be helpful here to be reminded of the people that Jesus says were insincere, were hypocrites. In Matthew 6 he warns his followers not to give to pray or to fast like the hypocrites who do these things just for show, ringing a bell and announcing so everyone knows that they're giving, praying loudly so people will be impressed by their many words and neglecting their appearance when they fast, so everyone can tell that they're hungry and malnourished. In the same way, those who follow the wisdom of God, we are to avoid doing anything just for show. How can you tell if someone is like this? If he is sincere without hypocrisy, how can you tell if you are like this? I said it a minute ago, it's found in the word consistency. Consistency. Consistency is possible because we have an unchanging God that we serve according to His unchanging truth. And so if our standard is unchanging, if our standard is consistent, then we too can be consistent. We don't have to guess at what God wants. It never changes. And Consistency in the sense of always being the same because of the truth that we abide by. But also consistency in the sense of treating others the way we treat ourselves, or treating everyone the way you treat anyone, holding the same biblical standard. You know, the other well-known use of Jesus calling someone a hypocrite is that famous warning to not deal with the speck of dust in someone's eye while not dealing with the log in your own eye, the log of sin. The one who does that, Jesus says, is a hypocrite. And so we see there's inconsistency in how he looks at other people with how he looks at himself. And we can again see how this kind of wisdom is contrary to the sinful wisdom that we saw last week. That wisdom is all about judging others and hypocritically confronting, looking down on others, arrogance. This wisdom, the wisdom from God, Is is sincere, it is loving, it is consistent. Have you ever gotten contrasting types of advice? Maybe not the actual advice, but how passionate they are, but it's from the same person. Two different kinds of advice from the same person. And you realize, and you actually say this in your heart. You say, well... I know they were saying that I can see what they're saying, what they want me to do, but I can cut through all the extra because I know they had a rough day. They're just really annoyed right now. Or when well, I know he wants me to deal with this, I know they said it's okay because they're just really in a good mood right now for whatever reason. And so they're more willing to overlook my issues. And you have to interpret their counsel based on the emotions and circumstances of the day. Being without hypocrisy, being sincere, means being someone whose counsel never needs to be questioned because you are consistent, because you are steady, because your view of God's Word is not based on your being overly emotional or your circumstances, because the Word does not change based on emotions or circumstances. So those are the attributes of wisdom. I know it's a lot, especially when we break it down, each word. I've given you six other definitions, and so in these six, we have 36 different attributes that you are to follow. But let me give it to you this way. It is actually really simple, and it all makes sense. It all falls into place because nothing we have seen is anything but simply an outflow of the character of God. And if you know who God is and what his character entails, just follow that. Because this wisdom is not distinct from him. It's not a tool that he uses. It is who he is. Everything that we have seen in godly wisdom is an attribute of God. So just follow the character of God. Well, let's move on to our third expected blessing of Christian wisdom, We've seen the association and attributes of wisdom. Thirdly and finally, the activity of wisdom. The activity of wisdom. Of course, as we have seen over and over again in James, there are lofty principles that we are to follow, but he always tells us, now you need to do something about it. Don't just know it, because this, especially here, would go against everything that he has been saying about wisdom and faith. Now act upon this godly wisdom. Verse 18, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, if you do not have the NAS, your version is very different. And to be fair, the Greek sentence is very difficult to translate. What does he mean by the fruit of righteousness? Is that the wisdom? Is that the product? Is that the doing? Let me restate it to help you understand what he's saying here. What James is saying is that the righteous deeds that the godly wise perform are done so in peace as people who make peace. So the righteous deeds that those who follow godly wisdom perform are done so in peace as people who make peace. Now back in verse 13, good behavior was described as being done with gentleness. Here, that same activity is characterized by peace. This peace is crucial to godly wisdom. And so we know, again, this isn't the kind of peace that would be achieved through conventional or worldly wisdom. This is not sweeping, for example, sweeping things under the rug. This is not compromising doctrine. This is not ignoring rather than addressing sin. In other words, this is not peace at all costs or peace as described by someone's sensitivity emotionally. This is peace according to God. It is a peace first and foremost that promotes unity within the local church through a submission to God and the total accuracy of Scripture. So to give you a very uh, clear and perhaps uh, maybe shocking example, hopefully one that never happens, this isn't, oh... Pastor Roger said it, we got to do it because we need to promote peace. Once I have taught you something that does not align with the Word of God, I have disrupted peace, even though you all sit there quietly, shake my hand. I have disrupted peace. So you see what I mean here? It is peace according to the adherence of the Scriptures. James makes clear. That there is a connection between godly wisdom, righteous behavior, and peaceful or harmonious fellowship within the body and between you as an individual and your God. There's a connection there godly wisdom, righteous behavior, and peace. I don't really need to elaborate there because you understand that within the context of Christianity, by pursuing godly wisdom and not ungodly wisdom, you are naturally going to promote peace within and among those who believe the Scriptures, okay? So again, to be very clear, I know I'm beating a dead horse for most of you, but to be very clear... This does not mean, well, I'm going to stop defending the gospel because it seems to be agitating my family members and God wants peace. That does mean navigating how to say that in a way that actually makes the gospel something they want to hear. That may be putting down your own words, because it's not the gospel, it's you that they get, can't get past sharing the gospel. Maybe it's waiting till after Thanksgiving dinner because they've started themselves all day. And now they're hangry and they're waiting for the turkey. Maybe wait until the commercial during the game afterwards. Those types of things, practical things. But what I am saying, you never compromise what you believe for the sake of peace. And we must understand that it's not just holding it in your heart and never saying anything about it. Because we have just seen peace and godly wisdom demand that this comes out in behavior and speech three expected blessings of Christian wisdom. The association of wisdom, it is from God and reminds us of who we are in God. The attributes of wisdom, ultimately, several of the attributes of God and the activity of wisdom, promoting peace and actually doing of the wisdom. I want to close with this. We must not forget that when we do not practice this kind of wisdom, We are, as we saw last week, hypocritically lying against the truth because there is no neutral in the Christian life. You are either pursuing and practicing ungodly wisdom or pursuing and practicing godly wisdom. You can't just sit and do nothing because that would be ungodly wisdom because godly wisdom has godly action. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is speaking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And he gives an example of how the Pharisees treated John the Baptist, his forerunner, and how they are now treating him. He says, When John the Baptist came, he was very different. He had an ascetic lifestyle. He had a strict diet that involved nothing that normal people would eat. And he didn't drink any wine. And he lived out in the wilderness. So the Pharisees saw that and said, This guy's demon-possessed. Then Jesus says, I come eating and drinking conventional food and drink, and those same people call me a glutton, a drunk, and a friend of sinners. And how does Jesus end this discourse? Basically highlighting the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, that they're just even contradicting themselves in how they judge and accuse others? How does he end this discourse? Luke seven thirty-five, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. In other words, true godly wisdom, which both John the Baptist and Jesus followed, will be justified by what it produces, specifically for them, godliness and converts. The lesson for us is that genuine wisdom will be proven by the genuine fruit it produces in us, godly living. Do not worry about what people say. Do not worry that ungodly wisdom is not called demonic in our society. It is actually called society. Understand that true godly wisdom will be vindicated by your godly deeds the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable gentle reasonable full of mercy and good fruits unwavering without hypocrisy and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace let's pray heavenly father thank you that in our salvation that we have the scales removed from our eyes that we could see and understand you, but also who you are and what you call us to. Thank you for your godly wisdom. May we be those, well, thank you, Lord, that we are those who are characterized it by your grace. But in those moments, for whatever reason, when we are exhibiting, if even just for a minute or for a day, ungodly wisdom because of our sin and our pride, may we quickly repent of it. May we move forward so that more and more we are characterized by godly wisdom. Help us, Lord, as we navigate in our families and with our children, our unbelieving children, and our unbelieving families, and and some of us, even our unbelieving spouses or co workers, how to navigate, how to live out true godly wisdom while speaking the truth in love, with gentleness, with humility. Help us not be dictated by our circumstances. Help our beliefs and convictions not be changed by our emotions. Above all, Lord, may we live out righteously this godly wisdom, serving one another so that we might promote peace, which is found within you, in your body, in your word. Teach us how to do that. Help us to excel still more for your glory. In Jesus' name.